Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to journalist Nick Wallace, author of The Great Post Office Scandal. Andrew's Cafe on the Grey's Inn Road, one of London's most beloved greasy spoons and a favourite of media bods, TV and radio presenters in London such as yourself, Nick. I think it was Jon Snow, wasn't it? Krishnan, Guru Murthy, Tom Bradby all signed the petition to keep this place going when it was under threat. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about the history of this place and why you've chosen it as your favourite place to meet. Well, this is like the modern cavern in Liverpool. It isn't the site of the original cavern. The original Andrew's was over the road. And uh, it had come to the end of its lease. And as you will be able to see, they are basically knocking the entire building down. I think they're keeping the facade. That's right. I saw that earlier. Building either commercial properties or residential properties behind it. Um, But it looked like it was the end of the road for Andrews. And you're right. It's beloved of media types because you've got the ITN building just up the road. Um, Obviously, there's a a lot of um, building workers who use it as well. And then we are a hop, skip and a jump from Gray's Inn. And uh, you'll often find a lot of legal sorts in here as well. And the menu is extensive and they do by far the best bacon and egg bap I think I've had in London. So um, when you need emergency bacon. (laughs) We're here, of course, to talk about the great post office scandal. Don't take this the wrong way, Nick, but I have never looked forward to reading a book less. Some will call the great post office scandal a supreme example of investigative journalism, and it is. Others may call it a work of true crime, but I increasingly think of it as a modern horror story. How would you describe the book you've written to somebody who only associates the post office with red signs jutting out of high streets up and down the country? Yeah, I mean, the post office used to call itself the nation's most trusted brand. And that was um, a bit of hubris, which effectively allowed it to blind itself to what it was doing. And I'm really taken by your description of it as a horror story, because that, I think, is something that really does get overlooked. Because of the scale of this scandal, people aren't that aware of the damage that has been done to individuals. And if you think of Kafka, Franz Kafka is a horror writer, which you, you could describe him. I mean, certainly if you um, read some of his books. But, but what Kafkaesque has come to mean of being trapped in a bureaucratic nightmare that is slowly eating away at your mental health and your financial prospects and your ability to do anything about it, then this is a proper case in point. It's often difficult to know where to start with a case this complex, but I'd like to read, if I may, from the introduction of the book. Seema Misra was sacked as sub-postmaster at the West Byfleet Post Office in Surrey and then charged with theft. A jury at Guildford Crown Court found her guilty of stealing £74,000 from her own post office. As Seema says in her foreword to this book, she was sentenced to jail for a crime she didn't commit on her eldest son's 10th birthday. You write then, when I met Devinda Misra, Seema's husband, his wife was still in prison. Devinda was adamant the case against Seema was wholly false. Seema, he told me, had been convicted on the basis of evidence from a faulty computer system called Horizon. It took more than 10 years for Devinda to be proved right. Devinda was the first person you spoke to about this case, wasn't he? To go back to the beginning, in the late 90s, the government wanted to automate the post office. So it cooked up a private finance initiative deal 
which it tendered. And the idea was that all of Britain's 20,000 post offices would be fully automated at the front and back end. Up until that point, all the branches had been essentially working by pen and paper. I mean, it's pretty much the same as it was in Victorian times. So the automation of the post office was essentially going to be the big bang. Suddenly the post office would have a handle on the figures that were passing through each branch because it would see the information coming back, not quite in real time at first, it was uploaded overnight, but transactions would go back during the day, but the majority of them would be bundled up and sent back to the post office back-end servers overnight. So the PFI tender was put out Fujitsu, um, or it was then known as ICL Pathway, an old British company which had been bought by Fujitsu, but it was 100% owned by Fujitsu, tendered for the the bid to automate the post office. They came eight out of the 11 scoring bids, but because they were the cheapest, the government selected them. And the system that they set up to automate the post office was called Horizon. The document which finally persuaded the post office board to sign it off as fit for purpose, I have not yet got hold of. But two months beforehand... The post office refused to sign off Horizon as a working system, listing all sorts of problems with its functionality and the training that was available to the postmasters in in order to use it. Anyway, it got rolled out. It didn't work. Then the post office rather foolishly decided that this was proof that there was criminal activity going on in their branches rather than trusting the postmasters, a lot of whom were saying, well, I don't understand what's going on. These figures don't add up on our computer system. It mostly worked. Of course. It mostly of worked. Course. It, 99.9% of it worked. It's just the catastrophic consequences for the 0.1% for whom it didn't work. So there was yeah. just an utter intransigence on the part of the post office to entertain that there might actually be something wrong, which is baffling, really. Complete lack of curiosity about the possibility of a system fault. Well, I think the problem was they didn't understand the IT. The post office had the IT system supplied to them by Fujitsu, and it was operated by Fujitsu. So you had the postmasters on one side, the post office in the middle, and Fujitsu uh, on the other side. Fujitsu were, under the terms of service level agreements, likely to get fined if there were problems with the IT system, which you know was falling over on a regular basis. They had a team of 30 people keeping the show on the road at Fujitsu Towers. But because they didn't want to get fined, they fixed them on the quiet. They fixed problems on the quiet. Now, if that meant a few postmasters suffered or ended up with holes in their accounts, that wasn't Fujitsu's problem. So one of the most, I think, appalling things about the scandal is, is that individuals who were sub-postmasters had to be essentially without any stain on their character in order to become sub-postmasters. They had to go through a selection process to be given the role of sub-postmaster. So even if they could afford the business, they then had to be selected for their good character and business acumen. And often these were people who'd had very good careers in middle management or very successful uh, entrepreneurial careers or retail careers. And they were taking on a post office as their last job before retirement. They'd put their entire nest eggs into this brand because they trusted it, because as you say, it was a brand that people trusted. And they were treated as criminals from the moment that something went wrong. And because the post office has its own investigation and prosecution function, it managed to bypass the police and the Crown Prosecution Service in the way it went about prosecuting sub-postmasters. It was victim, i.e. alleged victim of a crime, and then a judge, jury and executioner, almost, I suppose. Once they got them to the criminal courts, then it was down to the criminal courts. But by that stage, you had the post office saying these people have committed a criminal offence. And a lot of them were advised to plead guilty to these criminal offences in order to stay out of prison. And you mentioned that the post office has had a history of 
crime busting, that it has always seen itself as an authority to take unlawful conduct into its own hands and Guardians conduct its of own the public investigations. Goods, Guardians of taxpayers and public money. So sub-postmasters come together and they each share their stories and they realise that this could be happening to hundreds more people and indeed it's shown that it was. Where do we then begin on this crusade to bring post office to account Alan Bates, who was the founder of the Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance, had essentially been campaigning since 2004 with a website called postofficevictims.org.uk. And he'd been gathering individuals together. And when journalists started to get wind of this through the work of a former postmaster called Lee Castleton, Alan was able to supply the journalists with more case studies. And it was actually Computer Weekly, the IT magazine, which first broke this story back in May 2009 through the work of the editor Tony Collins and a reporter called Rebecca Thompson. They, with Alan's help, pulled together seven case studies, published that in May 2009, and just asked the question, what is going on? That was actually picked up by the Welsh language channel S4C, whose journalists, uh, who were BBC journalists, produced a half-hour documentary where they grubbed up another 30 uh, potential case studies, including Noel Thomas, um, and they interviewed Alan Bates. And I think it was those two investigations which landed in 2009, which prompted Alan to have the first meeting of what became the Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance. The conclusions to that meeting was that they should all write to their MPs and explain what was going on. And James Arbuthnot, the MP for North East Hampshire, had two constituents saying to him that they had been sacked, one of whom had been prosecuted, Joe Hamilton, for accounting errors at their branch. And they were adamant that it was the computer system. He had been a campaigner for the families of the two Chinook pilots who were killed uh, in the Mull of Kintyre air crash in the 90s. And after 20 years, those pilots had received an apology from the government for being blamed unequivocally for flying their, their, their helicopter into the, into the Mullican tyre. They were flying basically untested software, or not properly tested Boeing software, which had been upgraded and stuck into their Chinook. And no one had thought to properly see whether or not the software was to blame. So James Arbuthnot saw what had happened with the Chinook pilots, saw that Computer Weekly got involved with the post office story, and he started pulling together after the 2010 election, other MPs and asking if they'd had constituents coming to them with similar problems. And I think he got 20 or 30 of them together. And at that point, if 20 or 30 MPs are going, these honest-looking people came up to me describing absolute nightmares that they'd been involved with. I have no reason to disbelieve them, but goodness me, could they possibly have been convicted of of something they didn't do? Uh, He began a, a campaign and he approached the post office and said, look, you need to look into this. And so the post office then uses a, an independent investigative firm called Second Sight, which produces an interim report in 2012. The post office then subsequently sets up a complaints and mediation scheme in 2013. And it's during 2012 that a woman called Paula Venels becomes chief executive of the post office. Uh, you have not yet been able to get an interview with her. She's refused all interviews. The only time she's ever spoken publicly is in the Bay Select Committee when she was caught before a hearing in 2015. It's just extraordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, let's just look at Paula Venel's legacy, shall we? She was brought in to make the post office profitable. Through the actions of her, her predecessors and her board, the post office is valueless. The business department wrote down all of its post office assets to zero in its annual report this year. And it's landed the taxpayer with what will amount to a billion pound compensation bill. There is a case to say that the management of the post office could go down as some of the worst in corporate history. 
Another character who I consider a bit of an arch-villain in all of this, in fact, not just a bit, but quite blatantly so, George Thompson, General Secretary of the National Federation for Sub-Postmasters. It was his job to provide sub-postmasters with a port in a storm, as it were. He seemed instead to think his job was to ensure the success and reputability of the post office. I mean, he was the person in charge of the unions. And he has, like Paula Venels, refused to answer any requests for interview. But he has questions to answer. Why did he say that the post office had played a blinder on the Horizon system? Why did he insinuate that the campaigners, who were his former members, might be creating, in his words, a cottage industry of grievance and insinuating that they were on the take, they were criminal, and they're effectively trying to get out of uh, responsibility for the crimes they committed by throwing up some kind of argument that the Horizon system wasn't all it should be. I should have known that once we got started, it would be really hard to stop. Yes, um, but, but I think we eat, should pause. We? We <laughs> Especially should pause. seeing as I'm going out for lunch as well. So. <laughs> Tell me, what would you normally go for and what are you going to go for this well, morning? I have been looking forward to this interview for some time because not only do I get to meet you, but um, it means I get to go to Andrew's again. So I thought I would go for a vegetarian full English um, uh, although I was tempted to go for the, as I say, the emergency bacon and egg bap, which I would recommend if you haven't decided what you want. But it's, it's one of those menus where you can have pretty much anything you like, baked potatoes, omelettes, burgers. But I always go for something bacon, bacon or beans related. And will it be tea or coffee? Oh, can I ask for both? Can I have a cup of tea and a cup of coffee? <laughs> yes, I haven't had course. any caffeine this morning. <laughs> I'm, I'm falling over. To double down, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the, the High Court appeal from 2018 through to 2019? Uh, so the complaint and mediation scheme, which was a sham, which was set up in 2013, had essentially collapsed by 2015 in, in rancor and acrimony. Second Sight had been contracted by the post office to look into individual cases. The post office had continued its legalistic, antagonistic process. But, crucially, some documents did get out. Really important documents. And... They were then in the possession of both the Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance and the individual subpostmasters. I felt that I'd gone as far as I could go. I was a broadcast journalist. I had a story. I got it on Panorama. What more can you do? And the answer was write a book. So I started writing a book, which became that book. And Adam Bates went away to seek partners to sue the post office in the High Court. And... I thought, well, even if I don't publish a book, if I write up the history of this story, if it does get to the High Court, then all bets are off. You know, it's going to be amazing. And eventually, in 2016, he announced that I think he had signed up with someone to make this High Court claim happen. And over a process of two years, he got Freeth's solicitors on board, he got litigation funders on board, and he successfully or they successfully persuaded the high court that this should be a group litigation and eventually more than 500 sub postmasters sued the post office at the high court for all sorts of things damages uh, unfair contracts uh, uh, false sacking breach of contract and that started in 20 late 2018 even by that stage it wasn't breaking through in the public consciousness and there was no way even if it was a huge story that any news editor would allow me to sit through every single day of every single trial in this massive... So with the magic of crowdfunding? With the magic of crowdfunding, I was able to do it. And that was one of the greatest privileges of my career, that I had the opportunity to witness what was going on. 
I did all my news gathering whilst it was happening and then was in court for when the first judgment was handed down, which on the 15th of March 2019 basically blew a hole in the post office's defence uh, of the way they'd gone about doing things over the last 15 years to such an extent that they were almost completely fatally whole and the story had unravelled from there. But that was the first time on the 15th of March 2019 that anyone in authority had ever sided with any sub-postmaster about the hell they'd been through over the previous 19 years. And the post office reacted by trying to remove the judge from the case. Absolute icing on the cake, wasn't it? For perceived bias. Yeah, that, that was the, you can, you can ask a judge to recuse themselves, which means basically take themselves off the trial uh, for actual or perceived bias. And they believed that the judgment proved that he was biased against the post office. Now, they're legally entitled to do this. But at that point, they completely lost all credibility in the legal profession because no one, no lawyer I spoke to, I mean, the day it happened, one of the lawyers involved on the claimant side walked past grinning. I said, why, why, why are you like that? This is serious. And he went, he says, they've, they've blown it. They've completely blown it. This is, this is the sort of Hail Mary act of desperation, which had a dual effect of blowing up the Horizon trial. Um, it put doubt and stress in the postmaster's minds and it costs the postmasters hundreds of thousands of pounds, um, which they eventually lost, which went to lawyers and litigation funders and wasn't able to be given to them when they eventually won compensation. It was a seriously dirty, unnecessary trick to pull by an organisation that realised it was that or go bust. They failed and now we can see them bust. Are you happy for the victims who've been vindicated or are you still angry for them? Um, well, most of my career following this story, I have tried to be neither. I have objectively reported what has happened. Certainly and in I your reporting, but I suppose on a personal level, you must have gone home from this many occasions, churned up with an awful lot of anger. Yeah, the anger tends to be not... A, it tends to be the refusal of the executives to allow themselves to be held to account. That, that's where I get really angry because there is clear evidence that some people did bad things. We don't know why those bad things were done. We don't know why, in the words of one professor of legal ethics, palpably false information was given to Parliament. We don't know whether they knew it was palpably false or whether they'd been given palpably false information. But their refusal to be held to account, and don't forget the post office is wholly owned by the government, it's a public company, therefore all the executives should be, in my view, treated uh, publicly accountable in the same way that politicians and council leaders are. But their refusal to come clean about what they know and the way that that prolongs the agony for the victims, to me, is actually what gets me angriest of all. Horizon was supposed to be a piece of cutting-edge technology that could make calculations and decisions beyond the abilities of human beings. When people suggested it could make mistakes, they were ridiculed and ultimately robbed of their innocence. That was a piece of accounting software, a jazzy calculator. The roadmap for artificial intelligence in the 21st century is far more Promethean in its ambitions than anything to come out of the dot-com boom. Do you worry that we're inevitably going to see injustices like this happen again for the same reasons, only with much scarier systems at their core? Darren Jones, who is the chair of the Bayes Select Committee, which is currently hosting or holding a post office inquiry, is very interested in the question that you just raised. He made the point about Horizon in a parliamentary debate recently and said, how is it that the law, as it currently stands in the UK, 
can assume that if a computer looks like it's working effectively, it is working effectively. When we are on the verge of creating AI machines where those people who programmed it have no idea how it's going to behave. What needs to happen very quickly is that the great legal minds uh, of this world need to be properly advised by the great tech minds of this world to try and come up with some kind of framework which allows us to live justly in a society when we are surrounded by sprawling, complex IT ecosystems effectively making decisions for us on a daily basis. The law is absolutely not fit for purpose. It was changed in the late 90s when too many people were getting off speed camera fines and breathalyzer fines by claiming that, that the police officers operating them didn't know that they were working correctly and couldn't prove that they were. So the Law Commission just removed that requirement to prove that IT was functioning effectively and reversed the burden of proof, which is why you had the Horizon scandal happening how it did. So, yeah, I do worry. It's stories like the great post office scandal that should make Luddites of us all, not in the sense that we should be completely closed to technological innovation, but certainly ready with a hammer. Well, I think the, the most important thing is that you have to mitigate against bad outputs by ensuring that a bad output does not lead to a catastrophic endpoint whether it be the erroneous prosecution of an innocent person or a plane falling out of the sky. That, that's where the law needs to be very, very careful um, and come down on the side of the innocence, because mm. that's what it's there for. Mm. So the biggest lessons we can take as citizens and as a society from this scandal, in your view, you must have meditated on this. That's a really good question. I don't know. I, I am a cynical person. I don't trust authority. And I, I, I've never trusted authority. It's a natural thing within me. It's not something that, that has been trained into me. And it's therefore perhaps unsurprising that I became a journalist. I never wanted to become a journalist, but it, it, it helps to ha have a natural, natural distrust of authority. The, the galling thing about all these sub-postmasters is that they trusted authority. They trusted the brand of the post office. And they believed that if they worked hard and did the right thing, that their business partner, the post office, would do the same. And when things turned sour and they were threatened with being crushed by the post office, they trusted the law and they trusted that lawyers and solicitors and barristers and judges and juries would do the right thing. And they got crushed by that system as well. Um, I would hate to say that my one takeaway from this is never trust authority um, because I believe that of all the countries in the world that you could live in, the United Kingdom is one of the better ones for lack of corruption and the number of people in it who are willing to do the right thing. Um, but we still don't have proper consequences for bad actions once you reach a certain level in society. I know that sounds conspiracy theory-esque, but the, the C-class of this world and, the, and, the, and their politician enablers can get away <laughs> literally with murder and lawyer their way out of it uh, and be protected by the coterie of, of, of people around them who don't want to call them out for it. And that is a, a massive problem. It's a really, really big problem. And, and I mean, there's been a criminal investigation into two 
reasonably low level Fujitsu employees for the last two years by the Metropolitan Police. And that was only started because a very senior judge, a highly respected judge, passed a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions because he had such grave concerns about the evidence that they'd given in various postmaster court cases. But if those are the only two people that are under investigation, it takes two years to potentially go nowhere. That speaks to me that there is something seriously wrong in this country because there are people far higher up the chain who should be asked very hard questions under threat of criminal prosecution if they don't tell the truth. And I just can't see a way for that to happen in this country. And that is a real problem. The Americans aren't perfect, but they're much better at it than we are. I'm going to read the foreword to the book, which is written by Seema Misra. I have always been a spiritual person. When I was convicted of theft in 2010, my faith and my belief in justice was shattered. I was pregnant at the time. My despair caused me to think of suicide. I wondered if God wanted me to have something in prison to worry about. Thoughts of my unborn child kept a bit of hope and me alive. The Hindu religion has a concept of Ramarajya. That is the realm of what Gandhi called the moral authority of the people. It is a realm in which peace, honesty, prosperity, and security prevail. I had come to England, like many, believing Britain was a place of Ramarajya, which offered the opportunity to work, to thrive, and to prosper. Throughout our journey, we have made many wonderful friends who have been like lights in the darkness. Some have helped me to restore a bit of faith in English justice. They never believed, even for a moment, that I was a thief. Reading this book made me cry, Nick brings to life what the post office did to me and to my family in a way that makes reading it feel like reliving it. It is a story which broke my heart. You may think it could never happen to you or to someone you love. This book shows that you would be wrong. It happened to me. I was so touched by what she wrote. Um, She's a very spiritual person. They're a very spiritual family. They're a lovely family. It's been quite a journey being with her over the last... 12 years interviewing her and seeing her at her lowest and seeing her uh, flower as as someone who is believed by society, was believed by the courts eventually. And I sincerely wish her and and all the many other sub-postmasters who've suffered in the same way every success in the future and that they get the, the full compensation that they deserve, which should rightly be millions for what they've been through. Nick Wallace, thank you very much. Thank you, Jack, and thank you for breakfast too. 